You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Episode 61, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. Welcome to The Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. Thanks for joining me as we learn about the U.S. medical system through expert analysis. Today's expert is Dr. Rebecca Bernard, a family medicine physician who writes extensively about medicine and is the author of two books. Our discussion today begins regarding her recent article titled, I was a physician at a federally qualified health center. Here's why I no longer believe government health care can work. I believe you'll find the conversation interesting as we dive into what the highly regulated federal system might look like, whether it is mandated employment personnel ratios, for instance, PAs and NPs to docs, or the stifling of innovation in treating illness, I think you'll find it eye-opening. I'd like you to pause the show and head over to your favorite podcast player and leave a review. I appreciate your comments and show ideas too, so you can always email me at theparadoxshow at protonmail.com, and it's paradox with a CS. As always, show notes can be found at theparadox.com slash 061, and you can go to Patreon at patreon.com slash theparadox to support the show. All money raised there goes to the production and promotion of the show. But without further ado, Dr. Rebecca Bernard on a doc who left federally assisted medicine to treat the poor better in a DPC practice. Enjoy. Welcome. I'm here with my new friend, Dr. Rebecca Bernard. She's the owner and operator of Gulf Coast Direct Primary Care in Fort Myers, Florida. She's a family physician for 15 years, a medical doctorate she got at the University of Miami. She's also an adjunct professor at Florida State University College of Medicine and Nova Southwestern College of Osteopathic Medicine. She's the author of How to Be a Rockstar Doctor, and we're going to talk today about the piece that she recently wrote that was I appeared, I believe, in Fee uh, at, called A Federally Qualified Health Center. So, Dr. Bernard, thank you so much for being with me tonight. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this is the first time I've conducted an interview with someone in Canada, so that's pretty cool. Uh, and I, and like we were talking about before, I appreciate you not speaking French. Uh, well, I, you wouldn't understand me even if I tried. <laughs> so it's it's better for us both. <laughs> um, why don't you talk a little bit about the piece that you wrote? And I'll just let you kind of talk about. Uh, I guess it was sort of like right after your right after you got a training, right? That you sort of began that the journey into the federally qualified health center. So why don't you just talk about? I guess your training, how you ended up where you were, why you ended up where you were, and then sort of dovetail into the story? Yeah. So I went to medical school at the University of Miami, but before I even started medical school, I applied for a scholarship, the National Health Service Corps scholarship 
which is the program that uh, in exchange for paying for your medical school, you uh, will serve in an underserved area for a certain number of years. Uh, it could be usually four, although sometimes it ends up being a little longer. In my case, I ended up having to do six years. So I applied for and received this scholarship before I even started medical school. Um, and then so fast forward to seven years later, and I got my first job working in a federally qualified health center in an underserved area in a rural area of Florida. Okay. Um, it was uh, really quite an awakening for me because I always had a sort of a left leaning slant to my, my philosophy on life. I felt like, especially as a physician, I wanted to help people. And I really felt that the government had a big role in that and that they were probably the best placed to help people that you know couldn't afford or couldn't uh, manage their own health care. So I had this idea that I was going to be part of that solution and work with the system. And so what was interesting for me was just realizing that the theory that I had, what I believed in, uh, was good theory, but then the practice of it turned out to be a completely different situation. Uh, I found the actual work in that setting to be um, so bureaucratic, so many regulations, so many challenges, so many limitations that made it really hard for me to be a good doctor and really actually completely burned me out and made me realize that maybe, although the theory was good, maybe in practice this was not the most effective way to provide health care to patients. Right. And so I guess it, basically there are these, you're serving an underserved area. And so because for every year they pay for your tuition or whatever, just like if with the military, oftentimes it's the same sort of deal. Uh, that they support you financially, if they support you through medical school or college or residency or all those, then you just sort of owe that many years back. Generally, I think it's usually a one to one. Exactly. Um, right. And so it's similar to this. It's obviously not military, but you're you're serving areas that the federal government feels that are not served well by the medical community or there's not enough help, like general, oftentimes like reservations, um, Indian reservations in the, the plains or the out west. Mm -hmm. um, and so. And so when you went into this, this center, so these federal qualified health centers, can you describe exactly what they are? I mean, it, is this a hospital? Is this a clinic? What yeah, exactly in, the setting you're in? In my case, it was a clinic. They generally are clinics. Um, and often they're, you know, fairly, they can be very, fairly large with multiple sites. Um, they're clinics that receive federal and possibly state funding. They receive grants to run, and they also receive payment from Medicare and Medicaid at a much higher rate than one would ordinarily be reimbursed from those entities because of their special designation of being underserved areas. And then in addition, um, they also have a sliding scale. So patients may, if they don't qualify for Medicare or Medicaid, even be self-pay and pay upwards to, it could be as low as they pay $20 for a visit or it could be the full price depending on their income level. So the, these clinics receive funding and also pay, uh, payment from patients. I see. So it's a clinic setting and you're a family, family physician. And I guess uh, one of the expectations you have going into these things, I mean, you're doing it as a, maybe not a missions, not the right, the right term for it. Like, uh, I mean, sort like of, church organization, I, but I sort of like it, right? I mean, for the underserved, that was kind of like where my heart was. And it's interesting mm -hmm. because even when I was in college, um, before I got the scholarship, I lived in Mexico for a summer so that I could learn Spanish. And I had a real 
particular passion for working with uh, migrant workers and people that spoke different languages and working with the poor. I grew up poor. So yeah, so I, I will say that part of it was uh, sort of a philosophical idea and a, and a calling that, that this was the type of medicine that I wanted to practice. Right. And so it, and so you started the practice and what sort of happened, I guess, is it, were there any specific instances where you said, wait, this is not, this is not anything what I expected to be. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of just from almost from day one, um, I, I came in and I was expecting to be working with another physician and that person was gone. When I started, I was told (laughs) immediately, um, that I would be supervising a physician assistant. And then within just probably not even a month or two, I was also told I'd be supervising a nurse practitioner. Um, And what was interesting was the nurse practitioner was a recent graduate with very, uh, I don't think she had any uh, jobs before she started working there. And, you know, here I was, uh, just graduated from residency and never had any experience supervising a non-physician. They didn't give me any extra time to do that, but yet it was a responsibility and kind of on my license to take on the, the training of these non-physicians. So that was something I didn't expect from the beginning. Uh, I guess the biggest thing was just how many barriers occurred on a day-to-day basis to take care of patients. And patients would come in um, from either pri- by private vehicle or by, we had a little bus that would go around and pick them up around the community. And so they would get dropped off at the clinic when it opened and everybody would come into this big room and sit down and take a number and kind of get, have to go through this system where they had to do paperwork and and be basically vetted to see if they qualified for care that day. It was really a detailed uh, process because it's, you know, government mandates. So patients had criteria to receive the affordable care. So there I was as the doctor, you know, there ready to start working and then just sitting, waiting, twiddling my thumbs and just waiting, waiting, (laughs) waiting until the patients could finally be brought through into the room. And so that was something that I didn't really expect to happen um, and then just sort of problems like that all the time. Nothing was ever easy. It seems it would seem like there could be an easy fix or an easy solution, but problem solving and creativity was not really rewarded in this setting. If you did have an idea, you were told this isn't how we do things. This is the way we do things. <laughs> it's, you know, it's our way or the highway. And, um, you know, and there was really no room for innovation or, you know, certainly n- no disruption of the system that was highly discouraged. So I was really surprised, you know, especially as a new doctor where you come out of the, you know, where it's encouraged to be a problem solver. That's what we do all day is, you know, strategize yeah. and figure out ways to come up with, uh, overcome barriers and, you couldn't. So I felt very stuck and very stagnant. And so I would try like little things. Well, you know, I'm going to, since I know I'm not going to have a patient ready until, you know, half an hour after my start time, I'll just come in, you know, 15, 20 minutes uh, late just because otherwise I'm sitting there when I did that. And I had a meeting and one of my administrators came in and basically told me, in no uncertain terms that that was unacceptable. And so I, I, we were often as physicians, it wasn't just me, it's spoken down to, reprimanded. Um, I, I cited in my article once an administrator said he was, he told us all in person that he was going to have a come to Jesus meeting with us about, you know, because <laughs> he had heard we'd been complaining about the new electronic record system. But that was the sort of general attitude was, you know, you um, are here to do this job and you have nothing to say about it. Just just 
show up and don't complain. And like I said in the article, when I finally got that understanding, I and I started just saying, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, whatever you say, sir, uh, all of a sudden, um, nobody complained about me. All my administrators loved me and uh, I was able to get through it, but it was really torturous. I was depressed. I was anxious. And to be honest with you, I still have like a recurring nightmare where I'm working there. Then the rooms are just filling up, but I just can't get the patients taken care of. And uh, so it was a really negative environment. And the reason I wrote the article was just to explain that the idea of government running healthcare may sound really good, but the reality is just something that I don't see as sustainable for physicians. Yeah, I think <clears throat> I think it's easy to forget the fact that if you have the government involved, they have to have rules and uh regulations in place in order to make sure that they are paying the right people and the right things are being done. The problem is it's, it's by, by its very nature, it has to be inefficient. It has to be very regimented and um, inefficient. I mean, just, by, there's just no way to do it easily. Right. Unless you had, unless you had people could get whatever they want. Well, you could never do that because you have to in some way limit care, um, right. you know, whatever, you don't want everyone getting everything. And so if, if you have some sort of hard stop limits, then by its nature, you absolutely can't have people get, you're going to have to have all these rules and regulations. I, I think it's too, it's interesting that I don't think people understand with nurse practitioners and phys, physician assistants, or the NPs, the PAs that you might hear about, is that they come out, of, their training is very general, and then they learn their specialty training. It's on-the-job training much more so than it is for physicians. I mean, there is there is some on-the-job training for physicians. Once you finish your residency training, you have your core foundation or whatever the specialty might be. But you can go out and generally practice independently you'll probably need to consult a lot more your first couple of years. And that's why if you're a new physician coming out, it's nice to be in a practice or have at least people you can bounce ideas off of, like, what does this rash look like to you? Or have you had someone who's had these sort of symptoms, right? That's why it's helpful having those senior partners in, in practices. But to to have no senior partner there, like you mentioned, and then, and that's already kind of, you know, anxiety producing, and then to suddenly be expected to teach other people how to practice medicine. Right. I mean, that's a lot to ask of anybody. Yeah, and I think that's an important point uh, about federally qualified health centers is they actually have a mandate that they must hire a certain ratio of non-physicians to physicians. And um, it's I don't know if people realize that. And it's one of one of the issues is that these clinics are staffed very highly by non-physicians. And yet these are some of the sickest patients with the highest need. And that's another problem that I have with government run healthcare is this idea that that many entities have of just replacing doctors with non-physicians. Um, it's really, truly the training is not the same. And to put patients that have the highest need and give them providers that have the less hours of training just seems completely, you know, illogical to me. Well, and it's, and if, I mean, by its very nature, how do you know what the right ratio should be? Right. I mean, and to have any, have it set somewhere, <laughs> by someone in some meeting somewhere in DC or wherever to say, well, it's got to be three to one or 2.5 right. to one or whatever it is. I mean, how do they know what the right ratio is? There's no way you can know that. That's what the market sort of determines, right? Like what exactly Because the acuity of patients may be totally different from one clinic to the next. And maybe some clinics you would want more and some places you want a lot less. So exactly. Yeah. Uh, but having these mandates in place doesn't allow for any kind of flexibility. And, and that's, again, that's just part of the nature of when you have of government entities making the, the decisions, then you just have to do it by the book and there's really no room for flexibility. Right. And, um, you know, I, I feel like it, in many ways that 
people talk about nonprofits and nonprofit hospitals, you hear politicians all the time talking about the profit margin and the, or the, maybe the profit margin, but the profit incentive for these hospitals. And that if only they were all nonprofit, like insurance companies or pharmaceutical companies. But I would, I would venture to say that it's very hard to, to differentiate a nonprofit from a profit hospital, from how it's organized, how it administers uh, medicine, how it runs its organization. I don't think many people probably would even know the difference uh, if they're working within the organization. And, and I would think the government running as you know, the ultimate nonprofit, it is pretty much the same too. Yeah, and I would say that there's plenty of profit being made in these settings and including these federally qualified centers. They're just they don't have shareholders, so you know that makes them nonprofit. But if you just go to uh, the website, the GuideStar, uh, I think it's guidestar.org, which you can type in any nonprofit organization, including some of these federally qualified health centers, and they are required to post their tax statements. And um, I've looked up the community health centers in my area, and it's very interesting to see how many non-physician administrators are making in the high six figures, you know, for, for salary and benefits. Um, you know, COOs, COOs, multiple VPs. So these organizations are working for the underserved. They're doing good work. But believe me, there is plenty of profit being made from this healthcare. Yeah, I think I think that's the, the, the tricky thing to try and figure out what nonprofit essentially means it, in many ways. It's just that it changes your tax, just as a tax status sort of thing. Instead of, exactly. instead of, like you said, giving, instead of having a publicly owned in the sense that there are shareholders that the dividends are, you know, go back to or the value of the stock, it's now just redirected back into the organization, which I think in, you know, in, in theory, it's going to be put back towards even treating more people uh, and that it changes the way the, the organization is run. But fundamentally, uh, when, when, uh, at least in medicine, when people are going to conferences about managing healthcare systems, there's there's not really much difference between the nonprofit and the profit organizations. I would I would think as far as their strategies, and so yeah, I think the way that's they treat, true. Yeah, and so like the way they treat physicians or where they treat people who are, are nurses uh, is not really any different. And so there's very much a you know you're an employee, and so as an employee, you're expected to be like an employee. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny you say that because um, my article, of course, because of word limits, I had I kind of cut out a part of my life, which was that after I left the rural center, I actually went to work for a for-profit hospital entity. And what was so surprising to me was that the some of the very same issues that I had with the government-type clinic were the same issues I had in a for-profit health setting, which was I was an employee of a corporation. And again, innovation wasn't encouraged. Um, what I had to say, nobody wanted to hear. Uh, again, I, my yeah. job was be a cog in the wheel, you know, see patients, be a referral source. And so I did that for five years. And finally, I realized I can't work for anybody anymore. And now that I have my direct <laughs> primary care practice, I'm so free. And what I love the very, very most is my passion for the underserved never went away. And I do that now in a direct care setting. And I actually see some of the same patients that I took care of when I worked in that government clinic. They drive, you know, 30, 40 minutes from the rural area to my clinic. And they actually tell me that it's more affordable for them to see me in this setting. And of course, we take away all those barriers. There's no waiting. There's no showing documentation to see if you can come to, to see me that day. So it's, it's really freeing. And I'm, I love to talk about it to other doctors, especially those that are feeling burned out. Tell them there is another way 
you have to take a little bit of a chance because it's a little different. And as doctors, a lot of times we're kind of risk averse. So we don't always like to do things that seem different, but it's uh, the best thing that I've ever done. And I can't encourage it enough to any doctor out there. Yeah, that's interesting because I think, well, I mean, the most reason we go into medicine, I don't, it doesn't matter too much what specialty are the people going to medicine to serve people and to help them. Um, and that's what, where you get your satisfaction and, and however you might do that is in whatever ratio you do it is, is up to you. Uh, and so with you have your clinic like this, you can, you can, you could take care of everybody for free if you wanted. I mean, if you had, you could, you know, I mean, right. I mean, there's nothing to sure. limit you as long as you have a medical license and you, you, know, could. Those, you can meet state regulations uh, or you can have 50, 50 or whatever the ratio. How do you, uh, with your clinic, how do you figure out who's, you know, qualified to yeah. get your discounted care. So what I've done is I just set a low affordable rate. I figured out how much money I needed to charge to cover my overhead and to pay myself a fair salary. And I pretty much just stick to that for my patients and charge them this low monthly membership. Now, uh, if I do have somebody that I think has a particular financial hardship, usually what I do is I drop them down to my like young adult tier price. So I still want them to pay a little something so that I feel like patients and, and people in general, we do better when we have a little skin in the game. And also mm -hmm. we tend to value things a little more when we pay for them. So most yeah. people I don't treat for free, but I, I will take them even down to like the, the child price, which is my really my lowest membership. So, but most of my patients can afford the, just the, the standard membership prices. I set them very carefully so that anybody could afford my care. And I love the fact that I could have somebody sitting in my waiting room that, you know, works, you know, in the agricultural fields. And then the next person that comes in could be somebody that, you know, was born with a trust fund and everybody gets right. treated exactly the same. And I really value that and appreciate that so much. But really about 75% of my patients have no health insurance and either no none or a high deductible insurance plan. I take care of a lot of people who are um, not legally documented in the country, so their access points are limited. But even, again, even people that work cleaning houses and roofing and doing, um, you know, agricultural, they can afford the membership of the direct primary care. Yeah, I, I think that's really important because I think when I when – I talk to other people about direct primary care or, um, you know, they immediately think concierge and they immediately think it's going to about two, three, four hundred $400 extra a month. And this is the sort of the executive plan. And I, I remember I was even talking to a, um, an episode a long time ago, 20, 20 something, a former CEO or a CMO, I guess, of the Kaiser, uh, Kaiser medical group. And I was explaining to him about the, the direct primary care. And he said, Oh, well, you know, most people can't afford that. So, but for the people who can afford it, that's great. I said, well, actually, my, you know, my doc, who's a DPC doc, over half her patients, same as yours, right there. You don't have any health insurance and uh, they're immigrants. I don't know how many of them are illegal or whatever, but I mean, there are people who you would say can't afford healthcare, right? Exactly. And the problem is they just can't afford, they can't afford healthcare as it's priced in the Iraq rate, you know, when you go uh, to the hospital, but for, for primary care, they can afford, I mean, most people can afford, if they have any sort, if they're gainfully employed, can afford $50 or $60 a month right. take, for medical care. 
Exactly. And then especially when we can get these really affordable prices on blood tests, I have an in-house dispensary. So many times, sometimes even my insurance patients, they prefer it's less expensive for them to get medicines from me. And even a lot of times to get labs through me, we've had people where they get their copay bill or their deductible bill on their labs. And uh, it's so much more expensive than it would have been if we just used our client billing affordable lab prices. So not only is it affordable just to get the care, you know, to have the doctor access, but also to get ancillary services as well. Yeah. The, the crazy pricing system is, well, crazy. Right. <laughs> and I've run into that myself with, a, and I talked about a couple episodes ago, just getting a Holter monitor and what would have been a $250 charge cash, I decided to go through my insurance because, well, I had insurance. Sure. And it ended up being $5,000 as a 2,000% wow. markup. That's crazy. And uh, yeah. But, but it's, but you know, I, I tell that story, I, I think I posted initially on Twitter and everyone's like, oh yeah, I've had people who had that problem or I've dealt with my, people have had it themselves. And so it's not, I mean, it's crazy, but it's not something that is unheard of, right? It's, right. No, it say, happens well, all the time. Right. It, it really yeah. does. One of the interesting things in your article too, that uh, we haven't touched on, on yet is foreign, uh, foreign medical grads or foreign workers, uh, who are in medicine. So they're physicians who come to this country, they have their medical license and they're practicing, but they don't have a green card. And so they are given work visas. And, uh, and most people who are familiar with this, there are a lot of people in academics who work at work with, have work visas. And I can't remember if it's an H1 visa or something like that. I think it's a J1, I believe. J1. There you go. J1. I was close with a letter. Yeah. Almost. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so J-1 visa, which says as long as you're employed and you have to have a job, I think when you come to the States, you can stay sort of as long as you have a job. And as soon as you don't have a job and don't secure another one within a certain period of time, you have to go back wherever you came, where was Pakistan or wherever. Sure. Mm -hmm. um, and so you mentioned in your story that one of the problems that people have who get hired, because not surprisingly, these sorts of people have limited sort of employment opportunities when they're coming from, you know, wherever to the United States it's still a good opportunity for them, but they're sort of, I mean, in some ways, kind of a prisoner to the system. Exactly. And what's interesting is that to me is that this person that I met actually found her because um, I've kind of become a little bit of like a physician wellness person. And I'm really a big fan of, of doctors just getting help with our, our mental state because it's pretty hard to be a doctor these days. And uh, basically a person recommended her to talk to me because they said, you know, she's really going through a lot and she's really struggling. And she's not from a, a developing country. She's actually from a developed nation, but she wants to be here in the United States. And she was, she's told me that the um, employer's calling her in and telling her if she doesn't do better with patient satisfaction. And if, you know, basically she said, I, I didn't want to give the patients, you know, the pain meds that they wanted because it wasn't appropriate, but she feels now like she has to do something to improve her patient satisfaction. They essentially told her if she doesn't do a better job, she's going to get let go. And that means she's going to get deported back to her home country. So it's, uh, I just imagine that that's a scenario that must play out in other parts of the country. And in my story, it's interesting when I talk about it, I get a lot of messages from other physicians who've worked in these types of settings telling me, yeah, that sounds pretty close to my story. Uh, another doctor that has an interesting story is Steve Marin. He wrote an op-ed out in Arizona 
just explaining the difference between nurse practitioner and physician training. He was writing it in response to an article that was kind of very pro-nurse practitioner. And the article was really beautifully written, very diplomatic and very kind and saying how much he valued nurse practitioners. And he was actually fired from his job at a federally qualified health center. He was told that, you know, it wasn't, didn't reflect well on the, you know, the team partnership that the organization wanted to portray. And uh, Steve, he's public about this, of course, because it was published and, and we wrote more about it for medical economics. And he ended up having a lot of difficulty finding more employment because, you know, he worked in a small area. He's doing locum tenens now. And, but, you know, think about it, the patients lost a pediatrician with something like 30 years of experience um, because he just said his opinion about something. And so I think doctors across the country that work in these settings, you know, are feeling intimidated and feeling stressed. And it's really unfair because patients need doctors and they need doctors to practice and be happy and give them the best quality of care. And if these organizations don't treat the doctors well, then they're not going to be able to do that for patients. Yeah, I think there's, an, there's been a number of studies that have shown that if physicians are not doing well, their patients don't do well. Uh, right. And so, um, yeah, it's it's sad to see these, see people who are I mean, they're, I, you, I don't know the right term, but I guess, but you're basically at the will back and call of these, these centers and your initial thought of these centers when you're, before you start working for them is that they are something special. They're, they are, yeah. like a, they're, they're, you're just there to help people and they're actually run where they have an incentive to make as much money as they can and to extract as much revenue as they can by referrals and just like any other system, they're not really any different. They just have, they just tend to get a lot of money from the federal, from the governments, but the state and federal governments. Right. I think that's exactly what it is. So, I mean, they do do good work and they do help a lot of people, but I guess my point is that that same type of work and care could also be provided in a different type of setting. If, you know, if the proper incentives were there, or even if doctors just knew about the opportunities Right. So what is your, what is the, uh, the push in your book, uh, how to be a rock star doctor? What's the, the, the gist of the book? Yeah. So I have two, that was the first one that I wrote. What was, what happened was when I went to work for that federal, that, um, for-profit company, they were funny because every single day, every day, they sent us an email on an Excel spreadsheet and it had every single physician within the organization and how much money we had billed out. And I think they kind of what? wanted to, yeah, every day. I think they wanted to. So you to knew come. who was who? Yeah. I mean, oh, it yeah, wasn't like, it wasn't no, no, everybody blinded? was there. They wanted everyone to know how everyone else was doing that. And also patient satisfaction was measured and also um, posted for other doctors to see. I think they kind of wanted to create this competitive environment. Um, but what I realized after seeing the numbers was that I was pretty much on the top as far as billing and RVUs and also patient satisfaction. And, you know, that was for about five years. And the same thing when I worked at the federally qualified center, of course, after I learned to keep my mouth closed, you know, I was very productive there. And also, you know, patients liked me. And I and, and so some of the doctors at the, the for-profit company would come up to me because they would see my name at the top all the time. And they would say, what are you doing that is making you, you know, be able to generate such good revenue and also make your patients happy? And I was like, huh, I don't know. Let me think about it. And so I started <laughs> writing down some of the things that I did. And um, I use a lot of um, handouts and made a lot of cheat sheets. And I guess my thing is I'm, I'm always thinking about how to 
I don't want to say game the system, but how to work around the system. And so I started writing it all down and putting it together. And then all of a sudden I had enough material. And, and so I, I put out a book, and not only just from my experience, but I also interviewed a ton of doctors that were, I thought were really amazing physicians and asked them what advice they would give you know, to people who are just coming out. So that's how that book come, came to be. But the more recent one is called Physician Wellness, The Rockstar Doctor's Guide. And I co-wrote that with a psychologist. And it's talking, addressing a lot of the different issues that physicians face that create burnout and, and, and unwellness. And more from a psychological perspective, talking about things that you can do as an individual to improve the way you feel. You know, of course, the answer really is change the system. But you and I, as much as we try, that's going to be, uh, you know, an uphill battle. I think we can still try to fight the system, but we're going to get a lot further if we try to address how we deal with things, how we think about things and, you know, make those changes within ourselves. When I talk to other physicians who've gone into direct primary care, who've left um, some health system uh, or large um, medical group of some sort, they usually tell the same story that one of the one of the things that drove them out of where they were practicing is something like you're talking about this sort of score sheet that they receive that tells them that they're not either you're not referring enough, you're not ordering enough tests, you're not um, you're not utilizing enough other ancillary services within the, the the system, and that they have they're not doing a very good job of maximizing sort of the revenue. So did, how did you? How did you do that? I mean, that was probably part of the question, right? Like, how did you maximize revenue and all this stuff? Because usually people who are like you, or I guess are some, not disruptive, but someone who's innovative and trying to think of ways of practicing differently, usually these people like you don't last very long in those sorts of systems. Right. Yeah, I lasted for five years. And I'll tell you what drove me away, the, the final straw. My company got acquired by a larger company. And uh, we, we were on an EHR and I was on the EHR committee, you know, I'm going to help make it better for the other doctors and myself and put a lot of time and effort and volunteer time into that. And then on doctor day, we had got just gotten acquired by this new company and the new suits and ties were sitting in our meeting. And they stood up and said, you know, starting this date, uh, we are going to transition our EHR to a completely different EHR. Yeah. And there will be no data migration. All doctors will be responsible for inputting uh, patient information and et cetera, et cetera. And I think what made me the most angry was the fact that I had given all this time to try to make the system better only to be told, and eh, that's all gone, you know, and the cavalier attitude with which they told us that our whole basically world was going to be rocked. They, they don't realize what a huge deal that is to, you know, us as doctors, that the cavalier attitude was what I, I said. I left that meeting and I said, I'm done with this. I will not continue to work in this type of environment. It just, it, it's just not going to happen. But the way I was successful as far as, you know, being able to last for those five years was because I learned how very quickly to build rapport with patients so that I could get down to business really fast with them. And I think uh -huh. that that was the key to my success for why I could see so many patients in a day. And so that's what I talk about in the book is just how to really almost build like this instant rapport with patients so that you can get on their good side, you can get the information that you want out of them and let them leave the visit feeling that they got what they needed out of you. And then of course, gaming the system, basically all the tricks to how to get the note done as fast as you can, 
how to use, you know, the smart texts or templates or whatever you can yeah. to be super, super efficient. But, you know, it gets old even when you're really good at it. Like I, I, I know a couple of doctors that I think may have a little ADD and things like that. And I think, my God, I can't imagine how anybody can function with that in this world of screen changes. And you have to remember data from one you know, part of the computer to the other. And it's just, it's a really tough environment to function in. What, what would you say are the, say two or three tips for establishing rapport very quickly with a patient? Number one, um, smile give them really good eye contact, touch them, like shake their hand, act like you don't care about anything else in the world except them right at that moment. And uh, then listen to them, like don't interrupt us at least in the first minute or two, you can interrupt later, but you can't interrupt in the very beginning. And, but the, the main thing is just, I like to pretend like this is my, one of my dear friends and I'm so happy to see them. And they were, it's, that's especially important when you're really not that happy to see them. Uh, but <laughs> the, it really builds that, like that instant bond. And from that point, you get so much out of people. Small talk too. I mean, I'm, even though it seems like it's a waste of time, like just give them a minute or two of small talk even, you know, sharing small little, you know, insignificant details about yourself with them. People feel really bonded to you when you do that. And you just can get so much more uh, efficient visits out of people that way. So you're saying be friendly and human? Is that your advice? Yeah, it's amazing. It's rocket science, isn't it? It it is kind of funny sometimes when we sort of break down interact to people it's like wait that's just like talking to someone like a friend or something well <laughs> but, i do i do i pretend it, like this is a good friend and yeah. i'm just so interested to know about their their stomach ache today or you know whatever it is and uh I, you know i took a little drama club when i was in high school and i think that it's one of the best things i ever did to be a doctor uh, i think a lot of doctors maybe we have of course part of it is the computer steals our attention and you know we're yeah. distressed and we have a million things in our head but you have to fake it like you don't. Like the only thing you have on your mind is that patient right then. Um, because the patient doesn't really care that, you know, you're having a bad day or that you just came away from telling somebody, you know, that they're going to die. Or I mean, patients care, but really what's most important to them is, you know, their concerns. So as a doctor, as hard as it is, and sometimes it really is, we have to learn how to be, I guess it's really that practice of mindfulness as they talk about. So you're really mm-hmm. just being very mindful with that person in front of you right at this moment. Yeah, it's easy uh, with medicine and I would say probably any job, right? Like to, it is hard to treat that as the first, the first time that day. Because for me, you know, I have maybe five surgeries. And so by the time I get to my fifth patient, you know, I've already done four anesthetics for someone. And for for them, it's of course their first, and right. you know, maybe it's really their first. They've never had one before, and so they're going to be scared and all those usual things. And so, it's real easy to forget that it's for you. It's just like a routine job. You just kind of go. Yes. It's like you know, pilot just gets on the plane. It's like all right, we're going to fly to Cleveland today. And but for someone else, it may be the first time they've been on an airplane, or they haven't been there for two years, or whatever. And so, and that's all they care about, right? <laughs> yeah, they don't care what happened three days ago or what's going to happen next month, you know, when your vacation is, they don't care about any of that stuff. They just want to get safely to wherever they're going. And it is really easy to forget that. I mean, cause it becomes, it's just a, I mean, it is a job. And so you have to, you know, get through your, whatever it is your day, you have to d- just do it. 
do it. Yeah, we really have to put ourselves in, in their shoes. And then we really have to remember the fear and the anxiety for sitting on that other side of the table, you know, because it is scary. So the other thing I, I always try to do is I sit, I try to stay super positive and I try to um, downplay um, patients say, oh, you know, I'm so stupid. I shouldn't have waited. Or I know this is, I always say, no, you did the right thing. And I try to be super reassuring and positive with them. Uh, for example, if someone's really overweight and they lost one pound, I'm going to say, oh my God, this is amazing. You lost a pound. Or let's say they didn't gain anything. I'm going to say, oh, this is great. You didn't gain any weight. So I'm going to always be trying to be on the patient's side as much as possible. It's funny. I just had a guy, he saw me and he said, you know, after I left the visit last time, I told my wife that I'd seen you and that you gave me the nicest butt kicking I've ever had. <laughs> I thought that was so <laughs> funny because that wasn't how I perceived it. But I guess my little lectures, because I'm trying to be so positive about them, you know, that he perceived it as a, a nice butt kicking. So I guess that that's a compliment. I have found actually one of the, so recently within the last couple of years, we have to actually get consent forms, informed consents for anesthetics. Before it was performed by the nurses, so you just you would sign it. Um, but now they, the, they said, well, you have to actually do it yourself. So you have to go through the risks and of anesthetics and all that kind of stuff with the patients. And I have found that actually, when I get lefties, I, I always just tease them that they're left-handed, like I just call them weirdos. And it's actually been really good. It's been a great sort of uh, great way of just you know breaking the ice and yeah support and it. And it and I mean, I usually would joke around anyway, most of the time, like patients say, you know, just, you know, I'm really nervous. I say, well, that's good because I'm not, <laughs> you know, that usually gets, yeah, that's gets good because yeah, it makes you more, more human. It's, it's really important to patients. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I don't know. I, I kind of imagine what it'd be like for me and, and honestly, yes. it's much more fun if I have fun, if I have fun, if I'm not, if I don't, if I don't have any fun having a discussion with someone, I really don't want to be there either. So, I mean, for me, it's kind of joking around and just having a good time. I mean, you're doing your job and all that stuff too, but you know, you want to, you want to like actually want to be there too. So. Yeah, I think so. I think that's a great way to go. Well, I really appreciate the discussion. Uh, all the show notes will be at the paradox.com slash 061 links to your two books and to your clinic, which is Gulf coast direct primary care in Fort Myers. Yeah. I think, I believe though you are no longer accepting patients, right? You're full. We have a waiting list right now. So That's pretty good. whenever patients, yeah, whenever patients cancel, cancel membership, we open up to new people. Yeah, it's really nice. And, and maybe I'll have to get a new doctor. I had a, a doctor partner for a little while, but it, she wanted to be home more with the kids. So right now I'm just managing everybody. But, you know, who knows? Maybe one day I'll find a new partner. So any doctors out there in Fort Myers that are looking for a job, uh, feel free to contact me. <laughs> do, do you think there are, do you, I mean, my impression is DPC is growing pretty quickly. Do you get that same impression in Florida? It is. I mean, there's like a thousand DPC practices or more across the country. And in Florida, it's definitely growing. But I, what I see is, you know, the two, two groups of doctors, the kind that are, have a very strong entrepreneurial spirit or at least are to the point where they're so burned out that they're ready to just do anything but work for a, a corporation. And then people that are really fearful of doing anything different from the status quo. So that's where it's hard to find, you know, a sort of an associate because usually the people that want to do DBC are like, I'm going to do completely my own thing. So right, I think that's right, where right. we find more like solo practices or maybe at most you might find practices with two doctors. There are a few that are larger, but it, it tends to be just the smaller, really, really small practices. 
do you know if practices that that hire someone else like you know bring a second person do they generally do you like revenue share or is it sort of you just build up your own patient panel and we just kind of cover calls and stuff like that so is there still a lot of risk for a second person joining a practice yeah, it depends on the practice. Like I know the guys with Atlas MD, they give them a salary guarantee, but they're a little bit bigger. But the way I was doing it was my um, associate was getting paid a certain percent of all of her collections. And so okay. there wasn't really risk except uh, if somebody is like, you know, the main income earner of their household and they need to make a certain amount of income, you know, when you're starting a practice, obviously it takes a little bit of time to build up. So I didn't yeah. have the ability to offer some kind of like an income guarantee. It was just this is how much you make per patient that you get into the practice. Uh, and yeah. I think a lot of practices do it that way too. Well, I think we're really on the cusp of as soon as the – I think the supply will be there as, as soon as demand is there. And I think that that we're kind of getting close to the point where patients are going to – are learning more about this practice and they're going to seek it out. And once they do, then I think it'll be there'll be a flood of people who go into it because – there will be less risk for, you know, opening your own practice because you're not worried about, you know, not having enough patients. Yeah, I think it depends on a lot on the area. Like Florida is a state that did not do Medicaid expansion and, um, you know, also an area that has more concierge doctors like in south of me in Naples. So patients are a little more open to this idea, whereas uh, I've talked to friends that are in states like Oregon State and Washington where they have Medicaid expansion and or states like Massachusetts that has like a mandatory type of state insurance. And I think mm -hmm. those practices maybe don't have quite as large of a patient population that's, you know, ready for DPC. So I think a little bit of it depends on the political climate. Um, but I agree with you. I think the pendulum is shifting. I think patients, I think Americans in general, we really value choice and freedom uh, with everything, but especially in healthcare. So I, I think that, I think that we're going to see more of it, a tipping point towards direct care as the future goes. Yeah. I mean, I definitely all the time I'm seeing people opening new practices and they're, especially now you're starting to see specialists go into it. So mm -hmm. uh, if people want to find out more about you, and where's the best place to find you? Oh, please uh, visit my website. It's RebeccaBernard.com. And uh, that's where I have all my contact information. And I know you're on Twitter. What's, good, oh, yeah. what's your Twitter it's, handle? It's uh, Rebecca underscore Bernard. And also at Facebook, Rebecca Bernard MD. Very good. Dr. Bernard, thank you so much for taking this time and going over your articles. And I'll probably try and get a hold of you at some time in the future because you write so much. I'd love that. And thank you so much for your time. Thanks for listening to The Paradox. If you like what The Doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. And share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash theparadox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com. <laughs>